All right, well, now we'll, we'll go ahead and get into our, our lesson for tonight. This is lesson nine in this baptism series, really on baptism practice. And over the weeks and months, we've covered quite a bit of ground, exploring a wide range of theology and scripture and what the Bible says about baptism. This final lesson, though, we kind of want to wrap things up, tap some loose ends, and then also get practical. We want to talk about the actual practice of baptism in the local church, really just trying to apply everything we've learned and see how baptism should be played out in local church life. And as a side note, this is, by the way, this is how church practice should be formulated. Not so interested in doing things because of tradition, doing things because that's how they've always been done, but rather, you know, what, what does the Bible say we should do? So you're trying to formulate church practice. Well, you start by studying the Bible and studying it a lot and going to and trying to study it in depth and breadth pretty extensively. Let's put together the chapters and the verses and, and synthesize scripture's teachings. That's going to show us then, okay, here's what we should do. Here's how we should practice this or that in the church. Our, our doing should be derived from our, our knowing, our believing. And well, that's why we spent, you know, really the better part of eight lessons just studying the Bible on baptism. But again, that being said, we want to boil it down and, and try and narrow down, okay, now what does the practice of baptism look like in the church? So that's what we have in this final lesson. And we'll kind of do that along seven points. Starting with first, the, the meaning of baptism. Now, admittedly, this is kind of review, but you'll see why we need to restate and just synthesize now the meaning of baptism. Uh, so the meaning of baptism. You recall the, the basic meaning of the word for baptize is, is to immerse, to immerse in water. And the word came to take on a metaphorical significance where baptism was not just a water bath, but a symbolic act. And symbolically, baptism communicated identification. You may remember that way back from lesson one, this word identification, the, the ritual of baptism was to communicate identification with someone or something or some teaching. And to be baptized into something was to publicly identify with that thing. So if you were baptized by John in the Jordan, I mean, you are identifying with his message of repentance and preparation for the coming of Messiah. Now that Christ has come, though, we're no longer baptized into John's baptism. We're baptized into Christ, which essentially means we're identifying with Christ. The ritual of baptism is an outward expression of one's faith. Faith in and allegiance to Christ. Now, per the Great Commission, baptism, it's the defining mark and really the, uh, the initiatory mark of a new Christian. Baptism, we found, it also has an internal symbolism. As for the individual being baptized, we know baptism doesn't save, doesn't contribute to salvation in any way. It is rather the, the symbol of their salvation. And more specifically, you might recall we found water baptism symbolizes our real saving baptism in Christ. So remember this concept, baptism in Christ. This goes back to you know, lesson one, lesson two, our, our baptism in Christ. This came from our studies in you know, Romans 6, Colossians 2, 1 Peter 3. And we learned we're saved by baptism. We are saved by baptism. And we're not talking water baptism talking about this concept called baptism in Christ. That is akin to our salvation. It's, it's our baptism in Christ, so to speak, that saves us. 
Now, of course, Scripture is using baptism metaphorically in that sense to speak of our identification or union with Christ. It's our union with Christ that results in our salvation. And just be reminded, you know, how God actually applies salvation to you. It begins with new birth. God brings a dead sinner to life, enables them to respond to the gospel. They do respond in repentance and faith. And at that point, God spiritually unites the person with Christ. And this is in a spiritual and admittedly, you know, in a sense, mysterious way, but we're united to Christ. And it's then as a result of that union that all the other benefits of salvation flow to us. And so you study scripture, you find that our justification flows from our union with Christ. Even later, our sanctification flows from our union with Christ. Our future glorification flows from our union with Christ. And so union with Christ, it's a big deal. And this is why we can speak of our salvation as as akin to our union with Christ. And so our our baptism in Christ, that, that is our salvation. That's what's being pictured in baptism, by the way. Water baptism pictures this. Now, again, you want the details. That's not tonight. You can go back and re-download lesson one for that. But just as a quick reminder, this, this teaching really does come together in Romans 6, 3 and 4, where Paul merges this imagery together with baptism terminology. He says, Romans 6, 3, Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so via our union with Christ, his death to sin becomes our death to sin. We're free from sin's power over us. And further, his rise to new life becomes our rise to new life. And then we're free from the penalty of sin which is death. And instead, we're enabled to walk in newness of life. So Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. Spiritually speaking, that's what happens to us in salvation. We die to sin. We die to our old self. And we rise to new and eternal life. And all of that is what's pictured in baptism. Right? That's what's being symbolized in the ritual of water baptism. And this, this no doubt explains the meaning of baptism's imagery. You know, just as Christ, we did communion this morning, he infused the objects of communing, communion with the symbolic significance. You're not saved by the Lord's Supper. It doesn't contribute to your salvation. But the Lord loved to teach with word pictures and object lessons. And he, he, it's a way to communicate spiritual meaning. Take the simple, ordinary, known things and infuse them with a, a spiritual meaning, and they become teaching tools. And so we, we do hold a symbolic view to the Lord's Supper as well. And the same goes for baptism. It has a symbolic meaning. You have the new disciple who's plunged under the water, and that's a picture of him dying, him or her, dying to sin, dying to old self. The sin is no longer master over him. But he doesn't stay under the water, which in a way symbolizes the grave, symbolizes death. You know, humans don't do well underwater for too long. And just as Jesus rose, though, he rises from the water, picturing his rise to new life and also his cleansing from sin, cleansing from the old ways. Again, we know that our Lord Jesus loved to communicate truth 
through object lessons, and the ordinance of baptism is no exception. This was strategic just per his will, per his counsel, to give this ordinance to the church to initiate new believers into this body, this new covenant community, with this, this lasting reminder, this, this little play that they're acting out, like someone's going to dunk you underwater and bring you back up. Like, why, why do that? Well, in his wisdom, he wanted just a little reminder, an initiatory act of who you are, what's been done for you. The salvation realities are all tied to this act. And the more you realize it and study it, the more you see how baptism is not just some weird thing Christians do, but it's a marvelous picture of our salvation. And it's more important than we typically give it credit for. Even though it just takes place once at your salvation, it's one and done. Unlike communion, it's still supposed to be an important part of the beginning of our Christian life, which is why we did this whole study, to to give it more appreciation, right? So anyway, that's just a quick recap on uh, the meaning of baptism. Let's go to number two, the subject of baptism. We can kind of synthesize now a lot of what we've studied, the subject of baptism, meaning who should be baptized, who is to be baptized. We did some extensive study in this. We found that scripture teaches that the only subjects for baptism are believers in Jesus Christ. And that the ordinance of baptism is only meant for those who've turned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. Then we found this view is known as believers' baptism. And look, there are other good and godly Christians who, who think otherwise. And they believe that infants and the children of believers should partake in baptism. We did a couple weeks of deep study on this, and we just we concluded otherwise. We respectfully disagree with our brethren in that regard. Instead, we believe the Bible clearly teaches that the ordinance of baptism was meant exclusively for professing believers. Now again, I don't need to repeat all the Bible study we did. It'd be futile to try anyway. We run out of time. But again, in this final lesson, we're just formulating conclusions from what we have already studied. So you can revisit lessons seven and eight for all of that. But I'll mention again, look, the Bible's teachings on, on believers' baptism is, is pretty clear. And it's the exclusive pattern of baptism in the New Testament. Read the book of Acts, and without exception, there's one and only pattern for the practice of baptism in the early church. And time and time again, you see the same thing. Someone preaches the gospel. Some people hear and believe. They repent. They believe in Jesus. And then and only then are they baptized. They're baptized as believers. There's no examples of infant baptism in Scripture. And we simply disagree with their covenantal reasons for doing infant baptism. Instead, per the Great Commission, baptism is for disciples. Isn't that the whole point? This is for disciples. Make disciples. And then you baptize them. The church's mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And a disciple is made by, by what? By the second birth. Right? You're not a disciple by first birth. You're a disciple only one way by second birth. Even if you have Christian parents and you're raised in the church, you're still not born into the faith. You're not born into discipleship. And that actual membership in the real church of Christ, not just the visible local body, but actual membership in the new covenant comes one way, new birth, second birth, and faith in Christ. And that obviously precludes infants. That that comes through the door of faith, which requires some knowledge of the gospel, and then faith in Christ Jesus. 
That precludes infants, which is why you see no examples of infant baptism. But as the church preaches the gospel, people come to faith in Jesus. They're, they're born again. They're made a disciple. Well, then you baptize them. Baptism should immediately follow per the Great Commission. And for now, we'll leave it at that. We spent two lessons really digging into that. You can listen to those lessons for more. I'll simply say at this church, we will not baptize anyone who's not made a, a clear profession of faith in the gospel of Jesus. So we hold to a believer's baptism at this church. Okay, number three, the mode of baptism. The mode of baptism. It's actually something we haven't really talked about explicitly. It kind of fits in this last lesson of practicals where we can tie things together. This is a simple point of procedure regarding baptism, but it needs to be stated and clarified because once again, some Christians disagree. But the question here is, how should baptism be performed? Everyone agrees, okay, water's involved, but how? And we can rule out like a super soaker, like water balloons, but like otherwise, how are we applying water to someone to baptize them? Don't get any ideas. I saw some of you guys, right? There's only a few main options, and each has been practiced by the church at one point in church history. The three main options are sprinkling, pouring, and immersing. Sprinkling, pouring, and immersing. And typically, those who support infant baptism, they will practice sprinkling and pouring for obvious reasons. Although, you know, I think I remember hearing somewhere that infants have a natural reflex where they hold their breath underwater, right? But, like, what new parent wants to test that out on their child? Like, oh, I think they'll be safe, but you can try that on your kid. But, you know, starting with sprinkling, there's no record or example of sprinkling in the Bible. Now, it was later on practiced by the church but it was usually reserved for the sick or those who were too weak to be immersed. Baptism by sprinkling didn't become extremely popular until the 13th century. Now look, sprinkling with water or sprinkling with blood was a common mode of purification in the Old Testament. Remember, they did sprinkle for purification reasons. And that, that's really the only sort of biblical link you can make to sprinkling. But again, the, the Old Testament priesthood has not carried into the New Covenant and there's really no biblical connection between baptism and Levite sprinkling. Secondly, you have baptism by pouring, which is also not mentioned in the Bible. Now in time, it also came to be practiced by some in the early church. Water would be poured over someone's head, typically three times for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The pouring water on the head was said to resemble that the Holy Spirit resting on the heads of the disciples at Pentecost. But really, there's not much of a biblical precedent, really any, for, for pouring as the mode of baptism. There's an early church work, uh, the Didache. It's written in the early 2nd century. And it instructed Christians on the practice of baptism. Let me read you a little excerpt. This is just giving you a window into in, you know, the 100s how they thought of baptism. This was a well-known early work. It says, But concerning baptism, thus ye shall baptize. Having first recited all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit in living water. That just meant running water. But if thou hast not living water, then baptize in other water. And if thou art not able in cold, then in warm. 
But if thou hast neither, then pour water on the head thrice in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Interesting little reference from the 100s showing that the early church practiced baptism by immersion normally. But they did allow for pouring in some circumstances. Like if you don't have a bunch of water. What do you do if you live in the desert? And there's just no water around. Do you just delay baptism or do you pour? And there's some evidence that they would just pour. Now again though, neither sprinkling nor pouring have direct or indirect biblical support. That leaves us with immersion, which does have biblical support as the mode of baptism. That's talking about you're, you're going all the way in. You're getting all wet, uh, every part of you. That's baptism by immersion. And support for immersion comes along in, in three lines. Three lines of support for immersion in Scripture. And first, you just have the meaning of the words baptize, baptism, the word group. The meaning of the words themselves in the Greek. You know, the root of these words, bapto, means to dip, to submerge, to immerse in water. And so the words for baptism, they they literally mean to immerse in in water. That's that's the meaning of these words. The intensified form, baptizo, was used to speak of a, a ship sinking in water or a person drowning in water. I mean, immersion is just in the background of these words. If the New Testament writers wanted to communicate sprinkling or pouring for baptism, there's other like very well-known, readily available words they could have used. Luo, nipto, rhino, but they didn't use those words. They used baptizo, which just means to immerse, just means to immerse in water. So first, just the meaning of the words supports immersion. Second, the symbol of baptism, which we've already covered, but no, look, the symbol of Dying to old self, dying with Christ, being buried, and then rising to new life. You're only really getting that symbolism from immersion in water. You know, death, burial, cleansing, resurrection. Those all are depicted by an immersion baptism. Sprinkling or pouring at best can communicate cleansing. That, that's pretty much it. That's as far as you'll get symbolically from them. So, you know, immersion does better fit the symbolism behind baptism itself. And then thirdly, there are some explicit and implicit references to baptism by immersion in Scripture. And so real quick, let's look at a few verses. Turn to Matthew 3. And I said tonight is mostly our, we're synthesizing everything we've studied, but still have room for a little Bible study tonight. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. Let's look at four verses here. Matthew 3, this is John the Baptist baptizing. Matthew 3 verse 5 says, Jerusalem was going out to him, John, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him. In the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. This is a simple point, but they were being baptized in the actual river. They were in the Jordan River. If only sprinkling or pouring was required. First off, John didn't need to baptize by a river, but he always was by a river or source of water. And he certainly didn't need to baptize people in the river. If you just need to sprinkle or pour, that's that's that. But he made people, you got to go to him. You have to go to him. He's by the river because you were getting in the river to be baptized. John practiced baptism by immersion. 
And Christ's disciples pick that up. They're in the Jordan River for a reason. And likewise, look at the baptism of Christ just in verse 16 of Matthew 3. Jesus comes to him. He's baptized. He gets in the Jordan. And verse 16 says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And that's pretty obvious immersion language. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. He was plunged under the water. And as he came back up, that's when there's a depiction of the Spirit. And the Father says, you know, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so forth. But, you know, Mark 1.9 confirms Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. So he likewise went in the river. He went down and then he came back up. It's just immersion language. It's kind of obvious. Go over to John 3. John chapter 3. And then uh, this is, again, John the Baptist, another reference to him. John 3.22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And then verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Again, it's, it's a simple point. It's, it's not, not you know, direct evidence saying immersion. So this verse doesn't teach immersion. But it's, it's indirect, but I think still pretty obvious. You know, why was John baptizing in that location? It's a pretty implicit but obvious reference to immersion because you don't need a lot of water for sprinkling or pouring. You can do that pretty much anywhere. Anyone's got a well, there's any water, you can sprinkle and pour. A thousand people, no problem. But he went to Anon near Salim because there was a lot of water there. And you need a lot of water if you're expecting people to be immersed in water. And the records we have, that's what John was doing. He was baptizing people in water by immersion. And one more, Acts chapter 8. Let's do one more real quick. Acts chapter 8, 38 and 39. This is Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. He sees him. They converse about scripture. He shares the gospel with him through Isaiah. The eunuch believes. And, uh, you know, early on he says, Hey, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So look at verse 38. It says he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And then it goes from there. But again, we're just pointing out just contextual. It's just immersion language. They both get into the water, this body of water. They both go down into it, it says, and they both come up out of it. If it's just sprinkling or pouring here, that, that's all unnecessary. Uh, it, it's implicit. I understand that. But it also seems pretty clear that they were practicing immersion because there's really no other reason that they would go down into the water like that. And the practice of baptism by immersion was lost in the Middle Ages. It was largely replaced by sprinkling by the Roman Catholic Church, which soon adopted infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. And even you had reformers like Calvin who they carried forward infant baptism by sprinkling. That was more for covenantal reasons. Immersion, however, it's the only form of baptism that carries some biblical support for the reasons we talked about. And so for these reasons, we practice baptism by immersion here. We believe it, is, it fits the intended method for baptism. It, it checks the boxes from 
the meaning of the word, the symbolism, and just the pattern we do have in scripture. And so we do practice baptism by immersion. But in this issue, though, I think we do have to be careful about being overly dogmatic on issues that are not commanded or mandated in Scripture. And this is one of those examples where baptism by immersion, it is not commanded or mandated in Scripture. And so I don't think we can dogmatically hold to it and preclude any exception. So for example, what if a quadriplegic wanted to be baptized? I think we could accommodate that person by pouring. And what if someone was baptized as a believer when they were younger by sprinkling or by pouring? We would accept their baptism. We would not require them to be rebaptized simply so they can check off the immersion box and for no other reason. I have pretty clear and firm beliefs on these issues, but I'm not a, a hardcore Baptist either by upbringing or tradition. And so I don't think we need to divide the church over the mode of baptism. I believe pretty strongly and clearly in immersion, but because it's not mandated or commanded in Scripture, it is an indirect argument to get there. Uh, I'm not going to die on that hill. And I think we can be accommodating and, and gracious with our brothers who disagree on that issue. Okay, let's keep moving here. We've got a few more to go with. Number six, the timing of baptism. I'm sorry, number four. My note says page six. That's why I saw that. But it's number four, the timing of baptism. The timing of baptism. So baptism should take place, ideally, right after conversion. This is the clear and consistent New Testament pattern. A person believes in Jesus, and then very soon, if not immediately afterward, he or she is baptized. There's no large gap of time in between. And this also fits the Great Commission, which expects baptism to immediately follow becoming a disciple and then proceed being instructed on the Christian faith. And so baptism is meant to be the initiatory rite in Christianity. Now today, though, it's pretty common for people to go on for years, even decades, without being baptized. But just know there's no category for that person in the New Testament. The New Testament has no concept of an unbaptized Christian. And the only excuses for delaying baptism are ignorance or just a lack of teaching or outright disobedience. None of these are good excuses. Maybe the only good excuse is a lack of water, right? And for early Christians living in the desert, that was a real problem. And it's good. They had some reasons there, but that's not a problem for us today. You know, for a lot of Christians, I think the main culprit is just a lack of teaching and a lack of clarity on baptism. It's, it's rarely taught on. They, they just, they never heard about it. They don't know much about it. Now, as Protestants, we're very adamant. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. No work contributes to your salvation. That includes baptism. It doesn't save you. It doesn't contribute even a little to your salvation. But some mistake this to mean that, oh, because of that, well, I guess baptism is kind of irrelevant. Not that big of a deal. Insignificant. But just because it doesn't contribute to your salvation, that doesn't mean you can neglect or ignore baptism. No, but church leaders need to do a better job of instructing the flock and the value, purpose, and place of baptism in the life of a believer, that they can make an informed decision to obey Christ and be baptized. And so once the excuse of ignorance is taken away, that really just leaves you know, disobedience to Christ. And oh, God, at the end of the day, 
if someone knows better, but they're just willfully refusing to be baptized, they got bigger problems, right? You know, such a willful rejection of the Lord's will calls them to question their discipleship. And that, that's a whole separate issue. I also want to point out here, there's no age requirement for baptism in Scripture. Scripture simply teaches believers baptism. That by itself precludes infant baptism and those without faith. But beyond that, there's no age requirement. And so I don't believe in infant baptism, but children can get baptized, providing they make a real, knowledgeable profession of faith. And so that obviously comes with a little bit of age. This is something to be evaluated by their parents and shepherds on a case-by-case basis. So if you have a child and wonder if they should be baptized, if they made a profession of faith, that's something to think about. Maybe talk to your pastors and and just kind of go with that on a case-by-case basis. We want to promote baptism, and we'll just leave that for parents and shepherds to figure out on a case-by-case basis. I also want to squeeze in here and mention that Scripture also does not teach the necessity of a catechism before baptism, meaning there's no biblical requirement that says you must take a baptism class before you're baptized. Or you must have all your theology figured out before you're baptized. Those are not biblical requirements. A profession of faith, a salvation testimony, maybe the initial evidence of new birth. That's all that's required for a person to get baptized. Just beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ and just the bare basics of discipleship, a person does not have to know much else to be baptized. Some Christians feel inadequate for baptism because they don't know anything about the Christian faith beyond the gospel, where that's obviously required. But that's okay. Look, the Great Commission, you make a disciple, then you baptize them, and then you teach them to observe all that the Lord has commanded. That comes after baptism, not before. Like, you don't have to know everything to be baptized. That's not the point. Otherwise, who's really ready for baptism ever? Now, that being said, so there's no mandate, there's no requirement for a baptism class. But in some cases, there can be wisdom and prudence in having something like a baptism class or just providing some basic instruction on baptism for new believers. That's a wise thing to do, primarily because, especially in American Christianity, there's just so much false teaching or misunderstanding on baptism. Baptism classes, they're not mandated by Scripture, but in certain cultural or church contexts, they can be prudent to help people make a biblically informed decision and and, and really obedience to be baptized. It's only more edifying when a new believer understands what they're doing. And so if they understand just a little bit more of the meaning, the purpose, the symbolism, the mode of baptism, it's really all the better. And also given the vast prevalence of easy believism, and false conversions in American Christianity. It's led to so many false baptisms. Now, having just a a little baptism class, it gives shepherds a a good opportunity to hear the testimonies of new believers and just ensure that they they know the true gospel. They have professed faith in Christ and the real gospel. That's, from a shepherding perspective, that's very valuable. Just this past week, I spoke to a guy And he was baptized several years ago at a local church. He is at this church. He had a deeply emotional experience. So he went forward. He was baptized. Since that point, however, 
And we just, you know, had a great conversation with him. But since that point, his life did not change at all. By no measure was he a disciple of Jesus Christ. And even by his own admission, he didn't really claim to be a Christian. You know, I questioned him on the gospel in a good way, but he was just totally clueless. He, he believed that, you know, if, if you're basically good, you'll get to heaven. It's not surprising. That's what most people believe, right? But this young man should not have been baptized. Look, we're not requiring a master's in theology to, to be baptized, But someone should have prompted him for just a basic profession of faith in the gospel to be baptized. Just that that's a very simple requirement. And evaluated his true understanding of the gospel. That's that's just a a shepherding opportunity that was missed. It never happened. And the sad consequence was that he thought he was right with God because he had an emotional experience at church and then was dunked under some water. But False conversions like that, they're, they're going to happen in a culture that has watered down the gospel and maybe even cheapened baptism. But look, we don't want to go overboard, but it's prudent to guard against this by providing just some instruction on baptism and the gospel before a person is baptized. So it's not a hard and fast requirement, but we just think it's, it's wise from a shepherding perspective. And so Uh, That's why we do offer some baptism instruction at this church before someone is baptized. In fact, that's part of the reason I I wanted to teach through baptism here. I wanted to provide the church just some recorded teaching on baptism in detail so that people could learn really all the Bible has to say about baptism and better appreciate it. And really, I've been getting to this final lesson, this lesson here, lesson nine. I had this in mind from the beginning, and I've designed this to be basically, you know, required listening for people in the future who want to get baptized. Because this final lesson is like the summary and the synthesis and all the practicals. And if you're going to boil it down, this can be a, you know, a one-hour little lesson for someone to get, the, get their bearings before they're baptized. And so I trust that, hey, many people in the future from now will be listening to this message and before they're baptized. So you know, we, we can say hi to them as we speak. You know, hello, people of the future. So speaking of the microphone, you know, welcome to Bringing Bible Church. Look forward to your baptism. Okay, anyway. If they come to this church, they'll learn how corny I am sooner or later. So they'll get the the gist of it. Let's go through a few more here. Number five, the officiant of baptism. The officiant of baptism. This is one I think most people never think about or even really question. Like, But it's a, it's a valid question. Who should baptize believers? Who is supposed to administer the ordinance of baptism? And the answer is, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say anything. We don't have much to go by. We just have examples of people who did baptize others. You got John the Baptist. You got the disciples of Jesus, although not Jesus himself. You have Paul, who just did a few. And then you have Philip, just a few others. But there's just no teaching or reference on who should administer baptism. You might assume that this is an exclusively apostolic or pastoral work, but the example of Philip shows otherwise. He was not an apostle or pastor. In fact, it seems more logical per the Great Commission that whoever makes a disciple should then baptize that disciple and then be responsible for teaching that disciple. You know, practically, most of the time, it's going to be an elder or a pastor who will perform a baptism. But I don't believe that's a biblical requirement. And I personally believe that if you evangelize someone, they believe, they profess Christ, 
you should be that person to baptize that other person. I would encourage you to do so. I would also then encourage you to follow up with that person and you be the one to engage them in some long-term discipleship best you can. Maybe not all by yourself, but you should. You made the disciple by God's grace. Well, finish the job, right? That's the whole Great Commission. We apply the whole part, not just the first part. You may recall uh, some of you have been here a while. As a member uh, a while ago of this church, we moved to Northern California, Regis Cordero. He had some children who were getting older. They made professions of faith, and he believed they were genuine, so he wanted them to be baptized. He asked me to baptize them, and uh, I said no. No, not in a mean way. I just said, you know, he, he should do it. He should baptize his own children. He had done all the labor of sowing seeds and sharing the gospel with them. In effect, he made disciples out of them by God's grace. And he was initially taken aback because people default think, like, that's for the clergy, right? I can't do that. But show me in Scripture where it says anything on who should or shouldn't perform baptism. I, I just don't see that. You don't find a, some clergy distinction in Scripture for the administration of baptism. And so he baptized his children, and it was great. And so I, I don't hold anything on that issue. In fact, I, I think per the Great Commission, you make the disciple, and if you're comfortable with it, I think you should baptize that disciple. Typically, it's defaulted to the pastors and elders, and that's fine as well. Uh, There's room there. Number six, now we really are at number six, uh, the procedure of baptism. Try and get through a few of these last ones quickly here. Number six, the procedure of baptism. As we get close to wrapping this lesson up, I want to give you a little snapshot of, of what it would actually look like to get baptized at this church. So we're trying to get, you know, pretty practical here. So let's see how many steps. So we got six steps here. So if you're going to be baptized at Brigham Bible Church, here's like the, the rough snapshot of the steps. Step one, you know, just meet with the pastor. Let us know your desire to be baptized. Just kind of let us know. Your need for baptism, it will eventually come out if you go through our membership classes. That, that's a requirement for membership here to be baptized. So we'll eventually find out. But before that, you would do well to let us know that you've not been baptized and, and you would like to be baptized. You, you need to be baptized. That gives us a great chance to get to know you and, you know, begin a shepherding relationship, hear your testimony. So just, you know, basically let us know. Step two, attend a baptism class or just really meet with one of the pastors to just talk a little bit about baptism. And again, this is technically optional, but it's a strongly encouraged step where at a minimum, we just want people to know uh, some of the basics of baptism and gives us such a good chance to just, again, continue that conversation on their understanding of the gospel and what they even think baptism is. Maybe at a minimum, we'd be requiring people to listen to this very lesson so they get that rough snapshot of what baptism is all about, how we practice it here. Then on a case-by-case basis, just arrange for further baptism studies or discussion if a person really wants to learn more, they can go through the first eight lessons of this series. They'll get, they'll get the long version for sure. Uh, beyond that, you know, our main concern is just to help people make a biblically informed decision to obey Christ and be baptized. So we just want to make ourselves available on a case-by-case basis to shepherd someone through their understanding, make sure they, they know what they're doing. And I think that's only better. They know what they're doing and why they're doing it and that they know what it's all about. And so we just want to provide some instruction to help them along that, that way. Step three, schedule a baptism date and arrange 
for an officiant. Now, I'm obviously the, the default baptizer, but again, you can't ask for someone else to baptize you. That is something that does require elder approval, so we will have to evaluate that. But the vast majority of people, they typically have one of the elders or pastors baptize them. Again, just check uh, with the pastors also for uh, uh, baptism day, something we need to schedule. Typically fit it into a morning service. And so we want to just make sure it fits the calendar. We'd have to fill the baptismal, which I think you all know is behind me up on the stage, under the stage. So some planning is required. And if at all possible, we we tend to group them together just for the safe uh, practical reasons for filling the tank and whatnot. So, but simple enough, talk to us and get on the calendar. Step four, write out your testimony. Step four, write out your testimony. Before your baptism, we're going to encourage you to share your salvation testimony with the congregation. This is really an edifying and evangelistic tradition. And to prepare, we ask that you write in advance a short testimony telling how you came to know Jesus and how you came to follow Jesus. You know, with this testimony, when it comes to writing it out, I email out uh, for prospective baptizees, I guess is the word, or to be people to be baptized. I uh, give them an email document that gives all the details about how to write a testimony. But in short, you want to include in your testimony four basic elements. Your life before Christ, finding Christ, your life after Christ, and the gospel. We don't need explicit details of your life, but just how you were lost, how you were found, how you came to know Jesus. And also include the gospel message itself in your testimony, such that someone in the audience could be saved just by hearing your testimony because it has the, the gospel in it. So you know, if you want to write out your testimony and just preparation for uh, your baptism. Step five, arrange for a final meeting with the pastor. And by the way, this is all like really simple stuff. It's not like complicated. Uh, arrange for a final meeting with the pastor, probably a week in advance of your baptism date. Meet with one of us. Gives us a chance to review your testimony, talk it over, answer any final questions, and then this is where we go over the actual day of procedures, like what to wear, what to bring, what you're actually going to do, where to sit. You know, all those practical questions, we'll go over all of that and get you going for the day of. And like I said, I have another document that gives prospective baptizees all those details. And then step six is just to get baptized. You show up on that morning and the, the time comes, you read your testimony and you're baptized. And, and that's it. So it's a simple process, pretty straightforward, but we trust a, a helpful way to, to bring people along so that they know what they're doing and can have a, a blessed time honoring and obeying Christ in baptism and seeing the value of it. Kind of along those lines, as we finish here at the last point, you know, baptism, it is a one-time event. It marks the beginning of your Christian life. But I also believe the Lord intended it to have lasting spiritual value in our lives as a marker of our faith. And so I think it's a good way to talk about our last point here, number seven, the motive of baptism. The motive. Just kind of finish up here, you know, a final question, why should you do this? Why should you get baptized? It doesn't save you. It doesn't contribute to your salvation. So why bother with it? Some people can't answer that question. They, they don't really see the value or purpose to baptism. And that's why they delay so long. Like, oh, I'll eventually get around to it. But they, but they don't. Because they don't see the value or the purpose. Typically, it's ignorance. But 
they delay? Well, the first and most obvious answer is just obedience. I think as a simple matter of fact, Jesus commanded baptism for all disciples. There's no exceptions. He's the one who made this the initiatory ordinance for the church. The disciples obeyed him. They immediately started baptizing new disciples in the book of Acts in obedience to his command. And we are to carry that on. And so regardless of your level of understanding, we should just obey the Lord with a happy heart all the time. That's really the only reason a believer needs to be baptized. Like he said so, so, so just do it. That's not the only reason. But that's kind of all we need. Just simple obedience should take you there. But again, it's not the only motive. Another reason you should want to get baptized is because there is lasting value and spiritual value to baptism. I believe the Lord intended baptism as an object lesson that was meant to remind us of our salvation. It is a one-time act, but as we recall it, it has real ongoing spiritual value. And so to finish up, I want to explain this. There's at least three ways I see that baptism has lasting spiritual value. So let's cover these briefly here. First, baptism has evangelizing value. Has evangelizing value. And this pertains most to those who will witness your baptism. And since baptism often includes a public profession and demonstration of faith, it's a witness to any unbelievers present. You, you should be sharing the gospel in your testimony. And then as you're baptized, you're acting out the gospel. And the Lord can use these witnesses to, to bring someone to salvation who's witnessing. So every time a baptism is performed, this value, this evangelistic value emerges. Second, baptism has a unifying value. Baptism has a unifying value. In a prayer of Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And for those of, us, those of us who practice a believer's baptism, everyone who's been baptized has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, which means that they're all united by this common confession that Jesus is Lord. Everyone's there because they, they chose to be there. Now, obviously, it's, it's possible for someone to make a false profession, but until they prove otherwise, like baptism visibly unites the church. And that we're set apart. This is not something other people do, really. Who else practices baptism? It's still exclusively, I think for the most part, a Christian thing. But it, it makes us different, but also sets us apart together. It unites us. And as often as you witness a baptism or recall your own baptism, you would do well to, to think and dwell on, on your union with the body of Christ. Because remember, as you're united to the head in union with Christ, just pictured in your baptism. It's you're united to your head, the head, or you get the body with it. You're also united to the body. And we're all together in this body by common confession, Christ and the Lord. That, that's the glue that binds us together. And that's, that's in a way pictured every time there's a baptism. And as you recall your baptism, you're in the one body through one baptism. That should have a unifying effect. And then lastly, baptism has an edifying value. The baptism is a lasting marker of our conversion and our initial faith. And look, you should not exclusively rely on your conversion experience or your past faith for your present relationship with God. Meaning like you need, you need present faith. You're not saved merely by past tense faith. 
And some people believe they're right with God because, well, like I prayed a prayer, I made a confession of faith once upon a time. Even though presently they're not exercising faith, they're not living faith, and that they're relying on past tense faith only to save them, and, and that's no good. But that being said, it's still good and right to recall your initial faith. You know, that time you believed, your conversion. That's a good thing. Because that's when you were justified. There's many new realities that accompany your conversion experience, your initial faith. And scripture teaches we need to recall these realities often and live in light of them. And many of these realities are pictured in baptism. Right? Have you died to sin? You have died to sin. When did you die to sin? When you first believed. You've been cleansed of all your sin. You've been made a new creature. You've been raised to new life in Christ. These are all things that are true of you now in Christ. And you are to live as if you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And God wants us to remember what happened to us at conversion all the time and then live in light of that newness. And that's where baptism can have a lasting spiritual benefit Now, as we witness other baptisms or recall our own with this object lesson, we're just reminded of of what changed, what has happened to us, who we are in Christ. And that's meant to encourage us. We should think back to the new birth. We need to remember we've, we've died to sin in Christ. We've risen to new life. And those truths should encourage us and propel us. And do you ever get discouraged by your sin? I'm talking your, your ongoing, your present sin, the sin you still do, you wrestle with. I bet you do get discouraged with it. Now, you shouldn't excuse this sin. You should repent of it, turn from it continually. And as you do so, you don't need to be discouraged. And just think back to, to your baptism, to your conversion, to your faith. What changed? You're dead to sin. That, that's just a reality. You, you have died to sin. Sin's penalty is gone. Sin's power has been conquered. Eventually, sin's presence will be removed. And also, remember how you passed under those waters. You passed through the waters, symbolizing you, you've been cleansed. You truly in Christ have been cleansed of the guilt of all of your sin, past, present, and future. It's all gone. That you will never hear a guilty verdict before God for your sin. And that's all because of Christ. He conquered our sin and rose from the dead. And we have that new life now in him. That we came up out of the waters. And that should just motivate us and, and, and encourage us to, to press on and live in this newness of life. The sin you're wrestling with, a truth like that, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, that motivates you like, I, I want to be rid of this sin. I want to, I want to be done and, be, and, and live out the newness that has been purchased for me. These are the truths that God uses to fill our minds, renew our minds, and then propel new living. You know, you see, these, uh, these baptism-related truths, they're, they're meant to give you encouragement to carry on in the faith and overcome sin. Baptism, in many respects, has fallen on hard times. It's either misunderstood or just totally neglected. But I hope all these lessons have helped and change that for you. That, you know, we need to understand baptism rightly in Scripture. And then we need to highly regard it. It doesn't save us. But it has real meaning and purpose and value and lasting value in the church. 
I think the Lord knew what he was doing when he gave us baptism and communion as these two ordinances to mark the beginning and then the continuation of the Christian life. And we want to appreciate that. So let, let's hold high baptism as a critical ordinance and then think back often to how the Lord redeemed us and remade us in Christ and now to walk in newness of life as those who we've passed through the waters in Christ. So I hope this has helped you. That'll do it. That'll conclude our, our time in this baptism study. So let me finish this off with one more word of prayer and we will be done. Okay, let's pray. All right, God, we really do thank you for this, this study and this time in the word. We say that often, but, but so be it. We are grateful to, to have your word. You've given it to us. It's clear and it's filled with all the truth you want us to know and live by. And you've left behind your will for your people, the church. And that includes this ordinance, baptism, this little, this little rite you put us through as we come to faith in Christ. Something you designed and you intended for us to unify us, to evangelize, to edify, to picture our salvation. It has real value and purpose. And we need to understand and appreciate that. Even if we've been baptized many years ago, we can now appreciate more what, what uh, we went through what was done to us, what was done for us in Christ, what, what's symbolized in our baptism. And in all this, we can give Christ all the glory. For this pictures our salvation by grace and, and the new birth that was accomplished on our behalf by his death and resurrection. And that's something we surely need to remember every day. And so thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for bringing us through the waters that we have died to sin and risen to new life in Christ. And these are precious truths we need to hold on to and live in light of. So I pray you've only helped us do that by studying your word more. Thank you for our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.